right, hello family. Praise the Lord. Isn't he wonderful? Isn't Jesus marvelous? Mm. Well, grab your Bibles, open them up to Mark 14, verse 26. Mark 14, verse 26. And I just want to say before we get to dive into this, you know, there's a there's a way to to come uh, to church. There's a way to listen to the preaching of God's word where we we look around, we like we see who's not here, or who's not come with us, and we listen to the preaching of God's word. And we say, you know, I know who would really needs to hear this. You know, I can't wait to send them the link because I know who needs to hear this. And let me just suggest to you to help set us up for hearing God's word. You the one need to hear it. Okay? You're the one here. You're the one who needs to hear. Maybe now, maybe for later. Okay? Mark 14, 26. Jesus gives some disturbing news to his disciples. And then they all head out to the garden, the garden in Gethsemane which actually turns out to be a spiritual battlefield instead of this beautiful, relaxing garden. And the disciples sleep through the whole thing. That's where we're going to pick it up. Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written... I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed if it were possible that hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not wait one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation, the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See? My betrayer is at hand. Thanks, Rush. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. 
Jesus, you say clearly, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. So, Lord, we need your word. We need this spiritual bread to live today. I pray, God, that by your spirit, you would help us hear your word and be nourished by it. Help us be grateful for the meal that you have served up today. And uh, Lord, give us receptive and thankful hearts. We thank you that you're a speaking God. In Jesus' sacred name we pray. Amen. Uh, I was Once I was watching a uh, documentary that interviewed the families of those that died in the 9-11 attacks. And in this interview, they all described, you know, one thing they all said was, they said it was just a normal day. That day was a normal day like every other day. New Yorkers got up, they kissed their husband or wife, they walked out the door, they fought through traffic, they made small talk on the elevator, and they went to work just like they did every day. And some of them said that if they had known if they had known that that was going to be the last time that they were going to see their loved one, they would have said something different before they walked out the door. Like if they would have known the moment that they were getting to walk into. If they had known they were getting ready to walk into an attack, they would have said something like, I love you, or I'm proud of you, or you're a really or a great father. That's what they said in the documentary. There is a mundaneness to life that lulls us into a state of sleepiness. We think, sure, tragedy can strike, but not here and not now. I mean, I'm in a familiar environment. I drive this road every day. I, I'm doing familiar things. In fact, I could go to sleep and do this with my eyes closed. And so we just kind of go on autopilot. We, we in a sense, kind of just go, asleep, go, go to sleep at the wheel. You know what I mean? And if you've been following our series, you know that Jesus has repeatedly told his disciples that he is going to the cross. And he's told them also that if they're, go, if they're going to follow him, that they're going to have to pick up their cross too, Right? They will suffer like him, but they don't listen. And as the hour gets closer, he tells them that there's going to come a moment where each of them will fall away from him. That means they're not going to believe, they're not going to trust in him. And they all respond to this by doing what? They emphatically argue with Jesus. No way. Am I going to do that? And then Jesus leads them, interestingly enough, to a garden. A garden in Gethsemane where he will step into the greatest spiritual battle of his life thus far. Jesus will fight, get this, the fight of faith. Jesus will fight the fight of faith. The stakes of this battle could not be any higher. Will he trust the Father despite his sufferings, or will he go his own way? 
Why is Mark recording this for us to hear? That's the question you should always ask when you read scripture. Why did this get recorded as opposed to something else? What's the purpose of this? So why did Mark record this? Because he records it in pretty great detail. It's like the whole book is going fast and then he like slows this part of Jesus' life way down. It's because Jesus is doing what he's always done in the Gospel of Mark. It's show and tell, right? As it was for our leaders, so it will be for each of us who claim to be followers of him. Here is Mark's question for us, Crossway. How will our trust in God survive our own dark Gethsemane moment? And here's what we find in the passage. Surviving our Gethsemane moment requires that we soberly read the moment and that we appropriately respond to it. So how should we read the moment? How should we read this kind of moment? Well, it's this, the temptation to walk away from God, it's a real battle for each of us. Did you hear what I said? I hope you did. The battle, the temptation to walk away from God is a real battle for each of us. Look at verse 33. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going just a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Unlike any other of the gospel writers, Mark captures the emotional agony that Jesus is suffering with vivid detail. The others already talk about the physical anguish, but Mark really hones in on this this mental and emotional agony that Jesus is experiencing like none other. Jesus is mere hours away from his arrest, a brutal flogging, and eventual crucifixion, and he knows it full well. He's getting closer and closer to that hour. Jesus knows that though he is perfectly holy, he is about to personally experience the imputation of sin and all the vileness that comes with that sin. And he's never experienced that before, right? And if all of this was not enough for him to try to bear up under, Jesus is about to experience in his mind and in his body the full wrath of God poured out on the sins of the world so that they might be paid in full and might be atoned for. He is about to drink the cup of God's wrath all the way down to the last drop. It's as if Jesus has his toes curled over the edge of this deep, dark, canyon and he's peering down into it and it has no bottom and he's about to drop into it it's it's, if you like it you could think of it this way he's inches away from stepping under this bone crushing waterfall that never stops and it's going to drown him once he goes under that waterfall 
The thunder is pounding in his ears. The spray off the rocks is now hitting his face. The cup of wrath is being brought even closer to his lips. And Jesus quavers under this mental torment. He staggers. The Greek word for greatly distressed is the word ekphambeo. Ekphambeo. And ekphambeo means surprised with great horror. Like taken off guard, and what's taking you off guard is something that is absolutely horrifying to your senses. That's ekphambeo. He's greatly ekphambeo. See, Jesus knew conceptually about the suffering that he was going to face, but in this moment, he's now experiencing it. And he's experiencing just a mere foretaste. And the horror that awaits him has actually shocked him. Jesus has been knocked back against the ropes, and he's reeling. And he's doing this all alone. The Greek word here that we translate for sadness is perilupos. Perilupos means sorrow that inflicts pain beyond measure. That's a great little word you could add to your vocabulary. I'm experiencing perilupos this week. Inflicting pain beyond measure from sorrow. Jesus is saying that the agony that awaits him has saddened him and it has saddened him, it has grieved him to the point that it defies any kind of measurement. He can't quantify it. In fact, this sadness, he says, is killing him. It's like a weight that is crushing the life out of his body. He's so completely overcome with sadness that he can't breathe. And then he asked God not to lead him to the cross. If there's another way to secure salvation. Jesus in his human nature is at a crisis point of faith. He's been victorious over all the other temptations to walk away from God, to fall away from his father and do his own thing, right? The temptation in the wilderness, his own mother and brother tell him to get off his mission, right? Peter, he says, get behind. He's been victorious against all those temptations to, to, to fall away. But this battle has him hanging on by a slender thread. Mark really wants you and I to understand the moment here and not casually breeze over it. He's going to great lengths actually to help us understand this. As scandalous as the Gethsemane moment is, what I personally find absolutely amazing, and it's, it's beyond belief for me, is that far from keeping this from his disciples, Jesus brings Peter, James, John, and us right along with them into this moment. He doesn't hide his tears or his fears or his fragility from them, but he specifically says for them to watch. Watch. Don't turn away. Watch. Jesus is saying, look, look at the battle that I'm fighting through and learn from me. Learn from what you're looking at. I'm fighting the faith to believe in God. See me sweating profusely? See my insomnia in the middle of the night? 
Listen to my loud cries when I pray and learn from me. Read the moment right, boys. Recognize how serious this moment is for me since you are my followers. Man, we remember that before Jesus' Gethsemane moment, all the disciples boast. They brag that they'll be able to read the moment when it comes upon them. They've got this. Right? They, they are supremely confident that they will be able to look death and fear right in the face and be able to accept death before they lose trust in Jesus. Not me. If I have to die, then that's what I'll do. They go so, you know, Peter goes so far to say, look, if all these other guys that are standing right here next to me, they all fall away, but I won't. Supreme confidence. They believe that the choice will be easy in the moment when it comes upon them. They assume that. But Jesus wants us to look at him fighting the fight of faith and sober up. Sober up. It's a real battle. There is real agony that we will experience, brothers and sisters. There will be real emotional pain inflicted in this battle. There will be real doubts that pound on us mercilessly. Jesus did not breeze through this battle to believe God unmolested. And we will not be spared the exhausting battle either. So what? So stop napping and get sober, Christian. That's his message. You see, the truth is that we all have a breaking point. I don't like to talk about that, but here it is. We all have a breaking point where we say, do I really believe that God is actually worth all this agony? I mean, do I really believe that God is to be treasured over all the treasures that I'm losing or about to lose? Do I still believe that he's worth believing in? And just because you personally may not have, ex- you, you may not have experienced yours yet, that does not mean that you don't have one. Sometimes that crisis point is a very big cataclysmic event like a 9-11, like the death maybe of a loved one. But more often than not, it comes from this just slow, gradual accumulation of just a thousand paper cuts to our faith. You know what I mean? Just that didn't make sense, and that doesn't make sense, and I can't rectify that. And Bill Burr, some of you probably know who he is, right? He's a famous stand-up comedian. Uh, He was raised Catholic, and he jokes about how he left the Catholic faith He says that there were pretty much two things that caused him to let go of the faith that he was uh, raised with. He says one was that belief in Jesus didn't seem to make any difference in the people that he knew. He was watching. He was looking how they act. He was looking at their Facebook feed. 
It's watching. And it didn't seem like believing in Jesus changed anything in their lives. It didn't seem to make uh, any difference. It didn't see any change in his father. He didn't see any change in his mother that took him to church every week. So that was a problem. The other thing he said was that he had questions about the Bible. There's just weird stuff in it that he couldn't understand, like a virgin birth. Like, he couldn't make sense of that. And other things. And nobody wanted to talk to him about those questions that he had. Nobody wanted to address that and have conversations with him about those questions to explain it. And he said that over time, he just couldn't pretend anymore. He couldn't pretend to hold on to Christianity because he decided, I'm either going to be all the way in or I'm going to be all the way out. He says, I'm not going to be one of these people that goes like on Easter and Christmas and I say a couple prayers at a meal because it makes mom feel good. I'm either all the way in or all the way out. Which is at least intellectually honest. I give him that. Bill Burr says that he wasn't angry with or anything. He didn't have some big beef with the church or like it wasn't like somebody hurt him or anything. He said, I'm not angry. That's not what did it for me. He uses this metaphor. He said he just you see him, he just gradually let go. Just gradually let go of the faith that he was raised with the way an Olympic curler just gradually lets go of that stone. You know, the, the, the guys with the brooms and everything just kind of lets go of that stone. That's, that was his metaphor. The curler and the stone, they're traveling together for a while at the same speed, and they let go, and they're traveling together, and then the distance just gets further and further and further. He said, just finally just wave by. No more battle to believe. No more struggle. No more wrestling. Just rest now. He finally let go of his belief. But Peter was one of the three witnesses there that night, right? He's considered the source of Mark's gospel account. And so I want you to listen to what the Apostle Peter says and how it sounds an awful lot like the instructions that Jesus gave him that night. 1 Peter 5.8 Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He ain't playing games. If your trust, brothers and sisters, if your trust is going to survive a Gethsemane moment, then you need to read the moment soberly, not euphorically, drunkenly, triumphantly. Does this make sense? Are you tracking with me? You need to look at Jesus. Look at Jesus pouring out his heart. Look at Jesus pouring out prayers to the Father and begin to do the very same thing. Here's some black coffee for you. You will not be insulated from the battle to believe any more than Jesus was. Your knowledge of God's word will not prevent you from being assaulted with doubts any more than it prevented Jesus. Your faith will not prevent the devil 
from saturating you with flaming darts. He's going to fire them. Are you tracking with me? You will be stretched to your breaking point at some point. So what? So be sober-minded. And don't autumn think that you're just going to automatically breeze through a life of obediently following God without a battle. The way of the cross cuts right through the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you understand? For all of his disciples. I love you. This is why I'm telling you this. I really love you. So we soberly read the moment and we appropriately respond to it, right? Now how? I'm glad you asked. We desperately pray for power that we do not possess. We desperately pray for power that we do not possess in ourselves. That's how we respond to these moments. Look at verse 36 with me, would you? And Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus reads the moment rightly. He sees the real assault that he is under. He recognizes that he is fully human. So what does he do? goes to God in prayer. He goes to God in prayer. But notice he calls him Abba, my father. Jesus prays with such intimate, loving words. He knows that his father loves him. Despite what he's experiencing, despite the darkness that he is even now being plunged into he knows his father loves him but he just wants to hear it again like he did at his baptism in chapter one this is my son that i love and i'm proud of him right remember that he's reaching out in prayer for help this is not a stoic emotionally detached hero that slavishly accepts his awful fate like a man That's not acting like a man. Jesus act like a man. Jesus is wrestling against doubt in prayer with his father. He's being both honest and he is trusting. In essence, the essence of this prayer, he's basically saying, here is what I want in my human nature. And I am honestly letting you know because I believe you love me. I believe deep inside that you love me. So I'm going to tell you, this way is so lonely. This way is so painful. There's so much to lose and I'm asking for another way to accomplish your will, yet not Not my will, but your will be done. I love you and I want salvation for the world. And if this is the way that it has to be accomplished, then help me, Father. Help me accept that way. Mark says that Jesus cried this prayer. He cried it. That's what it says, twice. Repeatedly, for hours. 
Mark just wrote it down once, but he says, when you heard the reading, he prayed this prayer over and over and over for hours. In desperation, in weakness, in humanness, he sought God in prayer for hours. He did not rely on himself. Jesus didn't rely on himself, but on God. He did not trust himself. He didn't even trust his own thoughts. But he entrusted himself totally and exclusively to God in prayer. Hebrews 5, 7 sheds a little more light on what's going on in this scene. The writer of Hebrews says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries. And just so we don't think, like that just meant like he raised his voice. It, adds, it says this, and tears. He prayed with loud cries and tears, guys. To him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard. What kind of prayers did he pray to God? Loud cries and tears, and what happened? And he was heard. God hears those kind of prayers. In his greatest battle, Jesus actually followed his own teaching on prayer. Isn't that crazy? He is praying that God would not lead him into temptation, but deliver him from evil. Father, I do not want to be led into a place where I will be tempted to fall away from you. But if I must be led into this dangerous place, this dangerous cross, then Father, sustain me in it. Ensure I get on the other side of this evil. That's his prayer. And then Jesus finds Peter sleeping. He tells him to wake up and do the same. Look at verse 38. He says, watch and pray that you may not enter in temptation. You see the temptation that I'm being led into? Pray that you will not be led into that. Get to praying. Jesus says, wake up, be alert, and pray for help when you find yourself in the Garden of Gethsemane or else you will succumb to the temptation instead of fighting it. Pray to the Father for power to trust Him when you cannot see Him. Ask Him for strength to strengthen you and to put steel in your spine if He cannot give you a way around it. And then Jesus gives a reason The reason he gives why you and I need to pray for power, it's in the second half of verse 38. For the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus says you and I need to desperately pray for help because we are human. Not because we're sinful, That's not what he said, right? Because we are human. And the human body, human mind, has weaknesses. They have limitations. I mean, you get hungry, right? You you, you get sleepy. You want to stay awake and you're sleepy. You get lonely. You get nervous. You get worn down. And this leaves you vulnerable. Translation, you're forgetting that your spirit writes checks that your body just can't cash sometimes. Those are the facts. You're not as strong as you think, as evidenced by you sleeping in the middle of a firefight. 
I like this quote from Dr. David Garland. He says, quote, to sleep is to, pursue, is to presume that the spirit is willing without being mindful of the weakness of the flesh, meaning the body. Jesus does not want bravado from his disciples. Let me say it again. Because there's a whole lot of grandstanding going on in Christianity these days. Jesus does not want bravado from his disciples. Their bravado only masked their weakness and kept them from asking for God's help. Consequently, they lacked strength for the battle within. Close quote. You see, Jesus goes into the battle of his life with neither a detached stoicism nor with a loud bravado like the disciples, but with this third way again. We keep seeing this third way he shows us. This desperate cries of his weakness to his father. I I feel like I say this every week. I hope you get it. Jesus says that he's not just the truth and he's not just the life, but what is he? He is the way, right? He is the way that the truth is lived out in our life. And what happens? He gives these desperate cries of his weakness to his father. What happens? He comes out of this time of prayer hours later, trusting his father and obeying him all the way to the cross. He staggered into that time and he walks out. Hebrews says that God heard his cries and that God answered his prayers. Well, how did he answer his prayers? Since Jesus was not spared the agony of Gethsemane, and he certainly wasn't spared the agony of the cross. How can Hebrews say that God answered his prayers then? Well, God answered him by delivering Jesus through those circumstances, not from those circumstances. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Brothers and sisters, our faith will not endure the deep valleys apart from crying out in prayer to the Father. You and I do not have enough energy or power to bear up under the onslaught to our faith in Jesus all by ourselves. You don't got this. If you're in Gethsemane, you don't got this, okay? But God's got this. God's got this. We must be in prayer. I'm not talking to someone out there somewhere. I'm talking to you, okay? We must be in prayer. We must admit that though our spirit is indeed willing, our flesh is weak. And we ought to pray that way. We must ask for power that we do not possess. Sometimes we must ask for hours and hours and hours. To remain prayerless is to refuse to depend on God. And it is to welcome the destruction of our faith. It's to invite it. And Jesus shows us a better way. He shows us a way through the garden. And I want to end on this. This observation. 
I want us to just look at the love and the grace of Jesus toward his faithless, prayerless, sleepy disciples. <laughs> Let's just linger for a moment on how good he is to them. Jesus, you got to keep this in context, right? Jesus is just a stone throw, stone throw away, right? They hear and see all this is going on and they're sleeping through it, right? Jesus is, is, is at his mental and emotional breaking point because there's a war going on, right? He's experiencing, if you like, the panic attack of cosmic proportions, okay? It's crushing the life out of him. It's constricting his chest. He can't hardly breathe. And in the middle of all of that, what does he do? He gets up and he goes to his disciples and wakes them up. In the middle of all that he's going through, who's he concerned about? Not himself. He's concerned about his followers. Isn't he good? Isn't he gracious? Jesus takes time out to wipe the sweat drops of blood off of his brow with his shaky, trembling hand, and he goes and rouses his disciples. Not once, not twice, but he does this, I don't know how, but he does this three times. What love, what concern, what a shepherd. What a shepherd. I mean, you got to think back in Mark, a raging storm has them up working and they're alert and they're, they're calling out for help. But this, they see the condition of Jesus when he comes over and like he's drenched. They see his condition. They hear his anguished, tortured prayers and they can sleep through that storm. Just look at Jesus. Look at how Jesus loves you and how much he loves me. Who is like that? See how gracious and gentle he is with us in our weakness? He is the one being assaulted. He is the one who is alone. And yet he's concerned about us being attacked. <laughs> he's too good. He's too good. He says, wake up, my beloved. Wake up. You're zombies. Wake up. Watch, watch me. Look at what's going on and pray. Pray that you will not enter into temptation. If I enter into it, you, you know you will. Jesus is saying the same thing to some of you today. You're sleeping in Gethsemane when you should be battling in prayer. Your faith is in danger and you're peacefully dozing. Your trust in God is actually being siphoned away from you and you are sleeping soundly through the whole thing. Yet in his grace and in his love, Christ is rousing you. He's rousing you awake. Wake up and read the moment right. Start praying with desperation. That's being a man. That's being a real woman. That's what it looks like. And ask him for power you don't possess. Ask him for help before it's too late. And he will answer those prayers. And he will supply. He will give you those answers. He will be with you. 
do you see how Jesus loves you? He loves you in a real way. Though we are faithless to him, he is faithful to us again and again. Though we sleep through the battle, he will take no rest until all is completed for our salvation. What a marvelous Savior. Let's go to him in prayer now. Jesus, you're so good. You're so good, it hurts. <laughs> it hurt you to be this good to us. You love us so much. You love us with an unending, undying, never giving up love. Thank you, thank you for staying awake and rousing us awake and checking on us and caring about us when we sleep through these battles. Thank you, Lord, for all that you endured for our salvation and for our sake so that we could have your peace. Help us see you. Help us watch and pray. Help us pray with one another. We need one another to do this. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen.